are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos. And we are picking up this evening on page 382. If you're following along in the text, we are in volume one. And in this hypothesis that we are reading and the one that will follow, we are uh, listening to the, the Father speak to us about humility in particular. And humility, and it's the longest hypothesis in this first volume which should say something to us right away. And so we'll probably be at this for a good while. And uh, it's seen, as the, the title indicates, as the impregnable virtue, that this is not a virtue that the demons can mimic. And so it will talk to us about the fathers and uh, mothers of the desert will speak to us about how it is formed uh, within the mind and the heart. And... Uh, and what it enables one to do, I think, within the spiritual life, too, and the spiritual battle in particular. So some beautiful uh, writings ahead and some very challenging as well. So again, we're on page 382, letter B, from the life of St. Sincletica. The Blessed Sincletica has said that humility is so great a virtue that the devil, who can mimic almost all the virtues, does not have even the slightest idea of what humility is. For this reason, the Apostle Peter, knowing the security and steadfastness of humility, enjoys, enjoins us to be clothed with humility, so that it might be inseparable from us, and so that all of the other virtues may be thereby held and bound together. And just as it is impossible for a boat to be constructed without nails, so it is impossible for a man to be saved without humility. Have you considered the hymn of the three children? How, although they did not make much mention of the other virtues, they numbered the humble among those who chant without making reference to the chaste or the poor. Our Lord Jesus Christ, too, in bringing to fruition his divine economia towards us, clothed himself in this virtue. Learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Let humility be for you, then, the beginning and the end of all good things. So beautiful uh, writing here from Sincletica. Uh, and she captures some very powerful things as we make our way through it. Uh, in particular, the, the demons can't mimic it but also that they have no idea uh, what 
humility is in reality. And this, well, I found that to be a striking thought. But uh, when we set our minds to it, we might not know what humility is either. And as we make our way through this text, I think there are going to be some ways that we are challenged as we have been with all the other hypotheses that we've made our way through uh, the, the depth of this virtue and what uh, the kind of transformation it brings about in the human heart. Most often we know it through its opposite, pride. Uh, but to, to know humility uh, and to have an experience of it might not be something that we have as much clarity about as we think we do. And uh, and so I think even as we read through this text, it has to be in that kind of spirit that we have to be, as it were, humble as we read about humility. Uh, we have to be docile, as it were, teachable, uh, and allow ourselves to be shown uh, in and through uh, the writings and the stories of the fathers and the mothers here uh, of, of what it looks like. Uh, but what she does tell us here is that it is inseparable uh, to, or to be inseparable from us and that it is something that is necessary for, as it were, our salvation, uh, and but also that holds all the other virtues together, which is an extraordinary thing to say, that uh, it, it is the guarantor, if you will, of the other virtues. And I think that's why in the subtitle to the hypothesis, he writes, the, it's the virtue that's impregnable to the demons because it holds all the other virtues together and uh, allows us uh, to, to drive away the, the demons immediately as they, they would approach us. Uh, but getting to the point where it does so permeate uh, us and all of our virtues, that it does shape the, the way that we live our lives, that everything begins and ends with it for us. Uh, we aren't quite there yet until that becomes the, the reality. And uh, so we'll follow along here with what the fathers have to say and, and teach us. But what, again, we see held out to us is the true standard, and that is Christ. If we want to learn about humility, we keep our eyes fixed upon him and the cross, his teachings, and uh, we follow the guidance of his spirit in our life and allow our minds and our hearts to be shaped and formed by him. Uh, we, you know, humility, and we talked a little bit about this the last time, it's, it's not something that we sort of build for ourselves. We are made humble uh, by the circumstances of our life, of coming to see the truth and living in the truth. And how we come to see that reality and how we come to live in that reality uh, can be uh, a very challenging thing for us. Often it is through trials or having our weaknesses exposed, the times where we were arrogant or thought that we did understand things or the ways that we treated others, uh, you know, as if we were superior to them in some form or fashion, then we're humbled uh, by a fall into sin. Letter C from the Gerontcon. 
Roy, Roy M. Okay, I have I've muted all the mics. Uh, just so you know, I was getting a little bit of feedback there. Sorry about that. Uh, from the Drontcon. One of the fathers related that there was an industrious elder in the cells who wore a garment made of woolen rushes. On one occasion, he visited Abba Amonas. When Abba Amonas saw him wearing the straw garment, he said, this does you no good at all. The elder then asked Abba Amonas, Father, there are three thoughts that bother me, specifically whether I should go into the desert regions or depart to a foreign place where nobody knows me or shut myself up in my cell and have no dealings with anyone, eating every second day. Which of these should I choose? Abba Amonis answered, it will not benefit you to carry out any of these three thoughts. It is better, if you wish to hear me, to stay in your cell and to eat a small amount each day, always keeping the words of the publican in your heart. Then you will be saved. So it's not what we wear, of course, a, you know, a coarse garment. Uh, and it's not the ascetic practices themselves uh, as an end or the place where we live, uh, that Abba Amonis tells this monk, that none of these things will, will benefit you. That the thing that benefits a person is the, the hidden life of uh, eating in moderation, in, uh, keeping to a role fast, but more, most important of all, keeping the publican's words within our hearts, you know, beating the breast, acknowledging the poverty of our sin. That again, even our religious practices, the way that we talk about religion, the way that we dress, the way that we act can be filled very much with the ego. And there can be a lot of the self, in other words, uh, that is found in our words and in our actions. And, uh, a lot of self-focus, wanting to be acknowledged by others, or to, again, even simply to see ourselves in a particular light. And uh, we often forget the saying, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we still will cling in one way or another, whether we're fully conscious of it or not. We seek to exalt ourselves, uh, even in the pursuit of the things uh, the, of religion. So avoiding the really big sins or praying regularly, uh, you know, being very dutiful. We talked a good bit about last time as well. There's a great difference between being dutiful, following the rules, and being humble of heart, uh, being meek and gentle as Christ himself was meek and gentle. Here we have the perfect and most innocent uh, who humbles himself before uh, the Father, but before all of us, in the sense of taking the lowest place. And one of the things we should always think about is when we approach the altar, is that who, who is it that serves at this table? Who is it that receives? And uh, to acknowledge that it is from the hand of God uh, that we are, are fed and nourished unto everlasting life. And what cost that comes to us uh, and 
that this extraordinary thing takes place, that we sit down at table. If you remember Jesus' teaching in the gospel, there will you know, come a time when you, know, you will sit down at table and that uh, uh, you'll be served, uh, you know, I will gird myself and serve you. And uh, this is indeed what happens you know, in the crucifixion itself and the Paschal mystery as a whole, that Christ humbles himself and takes upon himself the lowest position in order that we might be exalted, lifted up. And so our path in following him is to have that same shape, that's the same form, humble, cruciform love is what is to shape all of our actions. Number two, a brother went to the mountain of Ferme to visit a great elder and said to him, Abba, what am I to do? For my soul is perishing. Why so, my child? asked the elder. When I was in the world, he replied to the brother, I fasted gladly. I kept vigil a great deal. I felt much compunction and fervent zeal, but now I do not see anything good in my soul. The elder responded to him, believe me, child, that whatever you did when you were in the world was not acceptable to God, because in doing those things, you were urged on by vainglory and the praise of men. This is why Satan did not make war on you. He had no interest in breaking your eagerness because you derived no benefit from it, whatever. But now when he sees that you have been called by Christ and are his soldier and have come forth to oppose him, he has armed himself against you. Thus the one psalm that you say with compunction here is more pleasing to God than the thousands that you used to say in the world. Here God more gladly accepts your small amount of fasting than the weeks of fasting that you undertook in the world. So an interesting thing that despite the fact of being in the world, the, the monk tells him, uh, and doing all of these things, uh, that the devil did, did not see him as an opponent, one to be warred against, because so many of these activities were filled with vainglory, with self-esteem. And, uh, and so you weren't deriving any benefit from them or not as much as you imagined yourself to be. It's only in committing oneself to Christ in this deeper way of giving oneself over fully to him that you begin then to be warred against. And this becomes important to understand because um, uh, he is falling into a kind of despondency here because he doesn't have the consolation that he once had from all of his practices. And in fact, here in the monastery, he could barely get himself to pray or to fast. And so the, the elder tries to help him understand that even one psalm, penitential psalm said with a humble heart is far more pleasing to God than all the different things, even the, the vigils, the great fasting that he, he did within the world. And uh, as we see, when we go on here, this doesn't satisfy uh, the young monk because he had fallen into such a state uh, that he found himself not being able to do anything. And uh, 
of all the things, it's a hard thing to say, but of all the things I've read in this hypothesis, this little story, I think, is one of the most important because we can be brought to a state in that spiritual battle where our efforts are so uh, attacked that we, we lose desire for it altogether. And it becomes hard to pray, hard to do anything. And we begin to wonder, you know, has our faith disappeared because of our piety has disappeared? And has the evil one really won? And so the, the young man comes back and says to him, now, I do not fast at all, answered the brother. Rather, I've lost all the good things that I had in the world. What you have now is sufficient for you, said the elder. Only be patient and it will be well with you. So he's lost fasting. He tells him, I lost everything that I used to do. And again, the elder tries to help him to be patient with this. Stand fast in the commitment that you've given, where you've let go of your will to give your life over to God. Don't focus upon the external uh, actions, but remain where you are. Don't allow yourself because of that despondency, to be driven out from where you've committed yourself to stay and to, and to do battle. But the brother persisted and said, Abba, my soul is perishing. The elder then replied to him, believe me, brother, I did not want to say this to you so as not to destroy your solicitude. But since I see Satan has brought you to a state of indifference, I tell you, it is prideful for you to suppose that when you were in the world, you did good and lived well. For this is how the Pharisee thought when he was boasting in the temple, and he lost all the good that he had accomplished. Now, if, on the other hand, you think that you are not doing anything good, this is sufficient for you to be saved. For this is humility. It was in this way, through humility and self-deprecation, that the publican, who had done nothing good, was justified. A sinful and negligent man who feels contrition of heart and humility is more pleasing before God than one who does many good deeds, but is of the opinion that he has completely succeeded in accomplishing something good. Receiving great benefit from this reply, of the Abba, the brother made a prostration to the elder and said to him, today, Abba, my soul has been saved because of you. Now, I say that this is one of the most important little stories for us, uh, because I think certainly on one level, we can see it rooted in the scriptures and in, in particular, the story of, of the publican. Uh, but there is a part of us that still clings to this vision of, of ourselves and of the spiritual life as climbing up that mountain of virtue. And uh, it's hard because even with, among the great spiritual writers, the image of the ladder, for example, we're reading on Wednesday, the ladder of divine ascent is used uh, as a pattern, as a model for us when describing the vices to be overcome, the virtues to be gained. But uh, we have to make sure that we, we don't cling to that image in such a way that we, it distorts our view of the spiritual life. Uh, in, in this sense, again, that we are climbing up the ladder of virtue. 
that the opposite of uh, vice is not virtue. And these are my own words. They're from uh, Erasmo Maricacus. He's, I, I think, a great scripture scholar. He's written this four-volume commentary on Matthew, very much like in, in the style at times of the Desert Fathers, this mixture of, you know, certainly of modern scholarship, more so of prayerfulness. But at one point, uh, he says that the opposite of vice is not virtue. It's Christ living within us. It's understanding that any life, any virtue, any goodness that we have within us is comes to us from the hand of God. It is he who sustains us in being. It is he who, by his grace, uh, allows us to move away from vice and to grow in virtue. It is in and through him that we are saved. And so even though this vision of himself is crushing for this young monk, uh, in a sense, he's being crushed against Christ. He's being drawn closer to Christ, who's the meek and lowly one, because this false image, this false self is being crushed and destroyed in order that he might see the truth in all, all of its fullness. And so as he enters into the monastic life, he's brought to this low point in order that the illusion can be destroyed, the illusion that we so often hold on to. And it's a difficult, difficult one to let go of uh, because we, our ego it has this kind of muscle memory. It wants to snap back in place and tell us, you know, to bring us back to the center of things. And so even in the spiritual life and in following Christ, it wants to snap back to this, uh, where the self is at the center, where we see ourselves as the source of our own virtue, that through our struggles, our difficulties, and even the trials that we've gone through, you know, if we can create this whole vision of the self that gets very tied up in our religiosity, in our piety, that subtly over the course of time can become more and more disconnected from Christ, even while we are professing him. And so the, the more honest path, the elder tells him, is the, the one who beats his breast and perhaps does not do a good thing at all. Look Again, look at the publican. You know, he beats his breast. He's done nothing good. He acknowledges that. Whereas the the uh, Pharisee is is brought down immediately because you know not only does he thank God for you know not making him like the the sinner, but uh, he goes on to list all the good things that he's done as a kind of evidence uh for you know why he should be in the standing good standing with god his you know he sort of paints a picture of his own supposed righteousness and what we find in the fathers is our being drawn back to the very heart of the gospel and drawn back to christ crucified the, the humble lowly one Come to me and you will find rest, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Uh, and uh, this is where we find peace, not 
in our own actions. So even as we are striving to take hold of the life that Christ has made possible for us and striving against our, our passions, we want to, to make sure that it's always in him. The beginning, as you remember earlier on in the text, the beginning and the end of everything. And so it's the beginning of our struggle and the end of that struggle. Any thoughts about this story from the Gerontcon? Any comments on it? And, you know, I stress it again because I think I've en encountered it in my own life, but in so many people that I've talked to over the course of the years, uh, especially when there have been things that have happened in their the early years of their life, that it's hard to imagine themselves as approaching God or hard to imagine God loving them. And, uh, or were they go through a period like this where they cannot see anything good about themselves, where that illusion is breaking down and it's it's really, you know, often faith uh, is experienced as a growing kind of darkness, the vision of faith, where we are allowing ourselves to be drawn forward. This, John of the Cross in the West talks a lot about this, a dark, obscure knowing, he calls it. And we are being drawn along by it. It's, it is knowledge and experience of God, but it's dark and obscure because... Uh, all the things that have even served us well in the life of piety and in the pursuit of virtue begin to, to fall by the wayside uh, because in and of themselves, they are not God. And so gradually we are stripped of them and uh, not as punishment, but that we might experience and encounter God as he is in himself. And part of this is certainly the, the humbling of the mind and the heart that is described here by the fathers, you know, especially if it is the, the virtue that holds all the others together, that we are humbled in this radical way and have to be, as it were, picked up as an infant and carried forward, you know, not, not by our own strength. And, uh, you know, John warns about this, John, John the Cross, that there's often this tendency to go back spiritually in the same way that the, this young monk wants to go back to his old state in the world where he seemed to be praying very well and fasting well. There can be uh, this struggle with those in the spiritual life to go back to previous forms of piety or ways of praying because of the consolation that it offered or it seemed more concrete rather than allowing God to draw them along this path of dark, obscure knowing into deeper and deeper faith in order that he might shine his light upon us, that he might draw us into this deep intimacy with him. And if you remember in the past, you know, how John of the cross describes it of passing into this experience of the spiritual life as a ligature, a break, it's like a bone breaking. It's 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 kind of painful, and some of the and you know in some of the same language that is is used here. But this is, is ever so important in the spiritual life, 
uh, because we see the struggle here, even as he's encouraged patience to wait upon the Lord, that all is well, it, there's part of him that can't believe that he will be saved and that he should turn away from this path. Okay. Number Father, three. Yes. Um, maybe you've already spoken to it, but uh, I utilize uh, the characteristics of humility and patience with everybody I'm talking to. Mm -hmm. And I look at this as the surrendering of myself while I'm in communion with other people. But then you mentioned something about being in that state of humility, waiting on the goodness of Christ to be revealed. Can you right. go a little deeper with that, please? Well, you know, what we are talking about and what we've talked about is the goal of the spiritual life it is the immediate goal is casting describes as purity of heart. Uh, but the ultimate goal is theosis or deification, to be drawn into the very life of God. And, uh, you know, again, we often look at this spiritual life uh, as a kind of fixing. We want to fix the things that are problematic with ourselves. And we've moved this way as we've moved away from religion to therapeutic man and therapeutic woman. You know, that if I can just have the you know, right kind of therapy or right kind of medication and not to diminish the uh, fruitfulness of, of such things. I think they are often extremely helpful, uh, but they are not God. And, uh, and we have this sense of fixing ourselves and others. And, uh, and priests often, uh, this is a little bit of a digression, but priests often fall into this too, because often people will come to me, come to us and say, you know, Father, help me, my life is a mess. And indeed, it is often a mess. Uh, but, you know, what they want is someone to fix it. And the priest's own ego will want to eat that up. You know, a fatherly figure, somebody comes to you that you can help out, and they're asking you to do that. And it's much harder to direct them toward Christ, to not let the ego become an impediment there and to take hold of it. Uh, and so rather than uh, acknowledging one's own poverty in that sense, you know, one who's uh, given that kind of responsibility often can allow themselves to be, take center stage. And in some sense, strangely enough, and not that this is true across the board, within psychotherapy, they know better in the sense of suspending judgment, not making a judgment about anything anybody says when they first come in, because they know the mystery of the human person, that things are multi-determined, and often there's a, a great history behind where a person is at any given point in their life. And so on a clinical level and on simply on this very human level, uh, they approach their work often with greater humility uh, than we as Christians approach our own faith life and spiritual life or priests or those who are responsible for helping others uh, will approach uh, 
you know, helping others and guiding them in the spiritual life. And instead of guiding them to Christ, seeking to make mini-me's out of them, or that we become the focus of their, or object of their affection and love, that could be a very seductive thing for the priest uh, to, to be that focus of another person's life and lose sight of the fact that their care, and more importantly, that they're being brought to Christ is the most important thing. And so we see uh, the elder doing this here. And it's only because he, he sees that, how did he put that? Let me, just give me one second here, Rory, and I'll get back to what you're talking about. He says, um, so it's not, he doesn't want to go too fast with him or encourage him unwisely. I do not want to destroy your solicitude. But since I see that Satan has brought you to a state of indifference, I tell you that, you know, the Satan had worked on him so hard that he brought him to this place of giving up. Uh, you know, that his heart had been coarsened by this experience uh, and he had developed this kind of insensitivity. If you remember, we've talked about in some of the groups where his heart becomes hardened uh, to, again, the possibility of the love of God, and but hardened to being drawn along this path of humility. And so he's, he's brought to the point of giving up. So the elder only then relents to and go further than encouraging him to be patient and goes further than simply giving him the examples from the scriptures, but uh, lays it out with a greater clarity for him what is taking place here. Um, and I think um, I think this is what you're putting forward, and you can correct me, uh, that our, our posture towards others uh, is to be something that is similar, you know, that we aren't meant to fix others. In fact, we aren't to gaze upon them with this scrutinizing eye. Uh, it's funny, you know, uh, psychologists in particular, deaf psychologists were, you know, called shrinks, head shrinkers, you know, kind of things. And, you know, that, uh, that what they were doing, uh, that somehow they had the capacity to read minds or, you know, that, uh, that one was like giving up one's you know, control or will in, in this, or, uh, you know, mo moving away from the guidance of conscience that, or one's mind was being made smaller by it in some ways. And, uh, but, you know, in reality, you know, they aren't meant to shrink things down, nor are we in the spiritual life. We, you know, what we are interested in is he who is reality, he who is meaning, he who is truth, he who is life. That That is what we are to be seeking in our own life and to help others seek as well. And we could do that with a lot more simplicity than we typically do. And I say that after babbling on for a good 10 minutes here, and I'm sorry about that, but uh but it's true. I mean, so often I, what 
it attracts me to the fathers, but what we see in them is this kind of simplicity of, of understanding that often the silence speaks in the most powerful way. And what it, and it prevents our words from getting in the way of people, people seeing the action of God's grace in a person's life. That is often the most powerful thing. And uh, when people see our love for each other and our love for them, our gentleness for them. And, you know, after 2000 years, one might want think that we uh, would be closer to this, but it seems every generation, every person has to come to see this. And every generation needs its saints. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about the Desert Fathers is that they're living icons of the gospel. You know, you see them or more more in their lives than in their writings. But uh, but in them, you see the gospel it becomes alive, something concrete. And that's what needs to take place in our generation as well. It's not going to be theological conferences. It's not going to be one more book published, you know, or encyclical written. You know, it's what we need, you know, is uh, saintly men and women who li live this. Uh, Father Mar Marty writes, after years of working professionally in the U.S., I'm formed to believe that results indicate that I'm doing the right thing. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea that God could see my failure as beneficial or that feeling like a failure could have some value. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what makes us shrink back. It's what makes this young man shrink back. And yet when we look at the life of Christ himself and how he was viewed by those around him, and probably even viewed by his own disciples, his own apostles, his life ended in failure object from this objective human standpoint. He was, you know, uh, seen as a, a heretic among his own people, kicked out of the synagogue, and eventually crucified as a, a criminal with the worst kind uh, of, uh, of means of being put to death. And they all flee. They all you know, deny him, betray him. And the two apostles on the way to Emmaus, they're, they're, they're making quick pace to get out of town. And uh, the same thing happens to them, though. You know, their hearts are become hardened because of the reality that they just experienced. And they had, their eyes had to be opened by Christ himself, that allowing himself to be broken and poured out on the cross in the, in the fashion that he did, what seems to be a failure in the eyes of the world, actually is the redemption of the world and, and allows himself to be broken and poured out for us in and through the Eucharist that, that simultaneously nourishes us unto this everlasting life, draws us into the life of the most holy trinity. That we are brought to a state far greater than that of Adam and Eve. We are raised up to participate in grace uh, and in and through Christ in the divine life. This is what's been made possible for us. And yet we still will function in this very worldly way. As Father says here, form to believe that results indicate that I'm doing the right thing. Remember, as a young campus minister in Latin Rite, we would have the bishop come at the beginning of the year 
you know, to celebrate an opening mass. And I remember him asking every student as they came out of the church, what university do you go to? What university do you go to? It was like there was a mental note being made of, you know, where the students were coming coming from. Numbers was a big thing. How many people do you have is often indicative of whether or not your ministry is seen as being successful. And there's this huge temptation then to begin to start making use of everything that we can get our hands on and to build up these huge teams, to build buildings, to provide students with everything that the university could provide in order to present the faith in this entertaining environment. And it's almost an impossible task. And in one sense, it can be a fruitless task because you might entertain them for four years. And then if they get out in a parish where they're not being entertained anymore, they're not, their faith isn't necessarily going to be, uh, is, isn't necessarily going to be something that sustains itself. So how deeply did you speak to their religiosity? You know, did your words, did what you teach pierce the heart in such a way that they experienced and encountered Christ? Or did you entertain them for four years, feed them for four years? And believe me, you know, everyone knows that having food at a group is the most important thing. And not, not to bash that because it's a way of communion. But we can get, we're not in the business of entertainment. And we're not hucksters or car salesmen, you know, where we're chasing people down and trying to sell something. Because, you know, boy, are they going to be ticked off when they see what the gospel really teaches. When they wake up one day and they experience that failure. And all, all of a sudden they're you know, their ego is diminished or they begin to realize, gee, my life is more than halfway over. And, you know, all those degrees are gathering dust. And, you know, uh, you know, I've had a parent pass away and I'm probably not long, you know, I'm not long, but, you know, far behind them. You know, I'm on the downward slope too. And, you know, th then, you know, what, what, what do they have to take hold of? And I think we do an incredible injustice. And, you know, the fathers weren't worried about, you know, they went there seeking this themselves. You know, there was no role. There was nobody there to teach them how to fast or to keep vigil or make prostrations. They went there seeking Christ and to give themselves to Christ, to let nothing, you know, become an impediment to that. And more often than not, we Christians become impediment for ourselves as well as for others coming coming to Christ. And so this elder, you know, wants you know to him to be free from this illusion and to see that in some ways God is allowing this to happen in order that he clings to God completely. that there's something far greater in experiencing that failure, feeling one to be a failure, because it eventually gives way to clinging to where what really does give us hope. 
Because in our minds, we know whatever we do on our own in the spiritual life or whatever we've accomplished in this world on our own does not give us hope, the hope that the human heart yearns for. It does not provide us with the love that the human heart yearns for. That's why we're constantly seeking after new and new things to fill it rather than allowing ourselves to be drawn to Christ. Learn from me, for I'm meek and humble of heart. Come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. You know, it's often those who've experienced the greatest failure or those who've known chronic illness, you know, not a day's comfort in this world that also know the deepest consolation. Because, you know, they've been compelled, they've been humbled by life to cling to Christ. And at times, you know, I think they're brought to the edge, you know, of giving up, you know. It's, Father Marty writes, it seems that consolation outside of the relationship with Christ could even be an impediment in the spiritual life. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting when he talks to the apostles about this, you know, when Peter, you know, Peter blurts out, well, we've left everything to follow you. And he goes through this whole litany. Well, you know, in and through your faith and among this community, you will find, you know, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, homes, families, and persecutions. You know, that it's not as though we do not or incapable or that we become incapable of receiving the gifts that God gives us or having gratitude for them, but we come to see them in their true light. But we have to always remember, even after we are told that, we remember what he also tells Peter and persecutions. The world will hate you. The world will see you as being odd and a fool, and you have to be willing to risk that in order to be able to take hold of what is being offered to you that is incomparable now, some generations i think maybe saw this you know in a clearer fashion those who went through you know the uh the wars or the depression you know when they didn't have every comfort in the world and ha and often had very little. Sometimes they had a greater understanding of, you know, of, of humility, of the experience of it. Father David. Yes. So I heard you use the word silence. And I find that between me and another human being, the entry point for God to come in and show goodness. I've seen it over and over again. So I almost say, before I talk to people, I says, here, God, make sure I stay out of the way. And it comes in, for me, it comes in the form of silence to go through the experience of whatever they're feeling, whatever the situation is, it doesn't matter. When the silence hits, to me, that's when God's coming in. That's when Christ is coming in. Right. Absolutely. And, well, and the reality is just that he's already in. You know, that he's present in all things that we, we go through. There's not one thing that we experience as a human being where he's absent. You know, and we suffer nothing in isolation. 
And so you're right, you know, what we could offer to others is nothing in comparison to what he offers. And, you know, silence is off, often the, the better path to that. You know, if you've ever gone to a retreat at a monastery uh, where, you know, there is this silence within which they live, uh, but it's not an empty silence. It's a silence that's filled with Christ. Sometimes when you simply are there, that you are drawn into it. You're pulled along into it. And it's tangible. It's it's concrete. And, uh, you know, it could become uncomfortable uh, for us at times. Uh, but it, one really has a clarity that it's not something that's empty. And, you know, I've quoted here many times that Carthusian that says, you know, that silence allows God to speak a word that is equal to himself. And so why would we want to, uh, you know, prevent that from happening in our own life uh, as well as others? Okay, that's a lot. Uh, when we move on, let's allow, again, the, the fathers to sort of draw us along. Abba Epiphanius used to say that the Canaanite woman cried and was heard. The woman with the issue of blood approached in silence and was praised. The publican did not open his mouth at all, and his prayer was heard by God. The Pharisee shouted and was condemned. So all of them led forth this kind of groan that arises out of their experience of poverty in one form or another, of again, of having been humbled by, by life or their own sin. The woman with the flow of blood, the publican, uh, the Canaanite woman, you know, that what arises out of them uh, speaks to God more than the Pharisee who's shouting his virtues to God. And, you know, the, the spirit, you know, Paul tells us, you know, cries out with groans that are, are beyond words, you know, this sort of groan of, of love. And it is our prayer and our groan, you know, of, of yearning for God that is united to that and perfected in and through it, that we, we have the spirit of God dwelling within us. And so again, what are we to fear? And like the, the young elder that we had talked about, even if he was broken down spiritually completely, that, that the reality of the spirit within him, you know, enriches, enriches him beyond measure and perfects even that infinitesimal little bit of himself, little bit of faith that he could possibly offer to God. And again, you know, going back to what Father Marty says, we get into this uh, frame of mind of, you know, what it is that we accomplish, what we produce, and that can affect the spiritual life as well, ra rather than taking hold of he who is fullness, he who is life. He was love, or better yet, allowing ourselves to be taken hold of. You know, behold, John says the you know the love of God, and it's to, to behold, to be held by, 
were taken captive by this greater love of God. And this is what we want to allow to take place. And strangely enough, as we've often talked about, we often will resist it or fear it. Fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, you know, precisely because of some, because it can, you know, our initial feeling can be of our smallness rather than the immensity, our capacity to see the immensity of the love of God that has just embraced us. Uh, Abba Longinos was once asked, which is the greatest of all the virtues? He replied, I reckon that just as pride is the greatest of the passions, since it was able to cast various beings down from heaven, so also is humility the greatest of all virtues. For it has the power to raise a man up from the dark abysses, even if he is a sinner like the devil. This is why the Lord called the poor in spirit, that is the humble, blessed above all others. So Christ turns the world upside down. And we've talked about this a number of times before, you know, that the blessed ones uh, were the the Greek gods and those in this world who are blessed were most like the Greek gods. You know, those who had great health, beauty, wealth, education. And Christ flips everything on its head. Blessed are the, are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You know, the, and it is because these are the ones, again, that are embraced by his loving, loving care. And this humility, again, draws us in, into his, his life, this truth, truthful living. We're embracing the truth of that poverty. And the moment that we do, we are drawn in, into the fullness of that life and embraced by it. And, uh, you know, again, this is something uh, that we often re- resist. And what the saints, even one like John Climacus, uh, you know, he's the most challenging of teachers, I think, in the way that he approaches things, as we know from reading through the text. But, you know, he says, you know, even if, a, uh, if how did he put it? He said, if pride can make demons out of angels, then humility can make angels out of demons that humility can raise raise us up to that, that fullness of life in a similar way that pride brought brought down the angels that we we let go of that illusion and are immediately drawn in to what god desires for for us and it's often hard i think for us to hold on to this notion too that there is a far greater desire that god has for us you know, a longing to draw us into the fullness of that love. I've come to set fire upon the earth, and oh, how I wish it was already burning. That there was a yearning for Christ to, to pour himself out in love, to even upon the cross, in order to set loose upon us and upon the world, if you will, the fire of the Holy Spirit, that we might be consumed by love. And often, 
you know, our state can make, make us make it very hard for us to believe that, that there can be that level of desire and longing for us, this holy longing. You know, we, we often will move to that state of like stoicism, you know, that we should feel nothing and that God doesn't feel anything either. You know, that God is, and uh, I mentioned Tom Acklin's book, The Passion of the Lamb here a couple of times, where he talks of an om omni-vulnerable God. You know, we're, we're very familiar with omniscient, omnipotent. It's much more difficult for us to understand an omni-vulnerable God, one who pours himself out in love in this perfect fashion, withholding nothing. Because in our minds, you know, that is to make oneself weak. In the minds of the world, it certainly is. You know, it's to take advantage, you know, the world takes advantage of the vulnerability of others. Abba uh, Sarmatia said, I prefer a sinful man who nonetheless recognizes that he has sinned and who repents to a man who has not sinned and fancies that he is perhaps virtuous. So a person who recognizes their own sin, this Abba is saying, is greater than the one who, you know, believes that he's virtuous and does not repent. Isaac the Syrian, uh, if you, in, in the ascetical homilies, talks about this, but he says, you know, one who, can see his own sin is greater than he who can raise the dead. So our capacity for truthful living, for humility, to see our own sin, opens the door to repentance, this turning toward God and healing the fullness of life. And... And so we want to see, even when we look at the lives of the saints, we want to see the most important things about them. You know, sometimes even the way that we talk about them is we focus upon the extraordinary things and often not seeing the extraordinary things that God does through them. But we see them as like super, you know, we can see them as superheroes uh, of having these special powers as magical rather than seeing that, you know, it arises out of these perfect, humble hearts that where God acts and can act without impediment. So that, that brings us pretty close to 8.30. Anybody have any comments about what we've talked, upon, talked about so far? I was wrong. It's the next hypothesis, again, on humility, that is the longest in, in the text. Father Marty writes, is it that the people you quoted are telling us that we need to realize that humility is actually an attribute of God he shares with us? Yes, I think that's what's been revealed to us in Christ, that uh, th this is the nature of love, but this is the quality of God. And all these things, the standard for us is Christ. And so when we see him, we see God. Uh, that he perfectly makes present to us the reality of God himself, which is humility, 
come to me for I am meek and humble of heart. So what is being revealed to us, what has been revealed to us is something of the very nature of the love and essence of God. And, you know, our will to power or our love of power, you know, well, you know, why do we think that, you know, people, you know, grown adults still watching these, you know, superhero movies because there's this fantasy, you know, of having those powers, you know, of being invincible in some form or another. And in the same way, it's the same temptation you know, of Adam and Eve to, to make ourselves gods in this world or the temptation that the evil one put to Christ himself. Cast off the poverty that you've embraced. You know, ch change the stones into bread. Fling yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. So you sh show yourself to be a superman, an invulnerable man. And so, in so many ways, we're clinging to this kind of fantasy life. And every, Father and, David, every, every superhero has weakness, and many of them pass away. Yeah, that's true. Everyone often does have a, a weakness. And maybe that's the truth pushing through th those who create them. You know the 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 writers and the artists that create them. You know that there there is only one God, and so even Superman has his kryptonite, as it were. But it's clear, you know, that these movies aren't being made for kids anymore. You know, they're being made for those in their thirties or forties who are watching them the most. <laughs> So the big kids. All right. Well, when we close there this evening, it's 830. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. All wonderful. And we'll, uh, we have a lot to learn here from the, at the feet of the fathers. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.